kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. After he agreed with the workers to pay them a denarion, he sent them into his vineyard. Then he went out around nine in the morning and saw others standing around the marketplace and doing nothing. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard and I'll pay you whatever is right. And they went. Again around noon and then at three in the afternoon, he did the same thing. Around five in the afternoon, he went and found others standing around. And he said to them, why are you just standing around here doing nothing all day long? Because nobody has hired us, they replied. He responded, you also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call to the workers and give them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and moving on finally to the first. When those who were hired at five in the afternoon came, each one received a denarion. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarion. When they received it, they grumbled against the landowner. These who, were hired last these who were hired last worked one hour, and they received the same pay as we did, even though we had to work the whole day in the hot sun. But he replied to one of them, friend, I did you no wrong. Didn't I agree to pay you a denarion? Take what belongs to you and go. I want to give to this one who was hired last the same as I give to you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with what belongs to me? Or are you resentful because I'm generous? So those who are last will be first, and those who are first will be last. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Joe. When I originally asked Joe to read that, I thought I would get a little more of like a Queen's accent in there for talking with the workers, but that was good. Thanks, Joe. Uh, writer Flannery O'Connor uh, once said, all of my stories, and if you know her, this is really true, all of my stories are about the action of grace on a character who's not very willing to support it. But most people think of these stories as hard, hopeless, and brutal. The action of grace on someone who's not willing to support it, and it winds up being hard, hopeless, and brutal sounding. I think today we're treated to kind of such a story, a parable really, not by Miss O'Connor, but by Jesus of Nazareth. Which, if you read it in one direction, kind of seems hard, hopeless, and brutal, especially if you were early on in uh, the work. But I think it's actually really about grace. Of course, it's not only about grace. Parables work on many different levels and can be read from many different angles. So don't trust anyone if they tell you they, they know like the interpretation of a parable, uh, especially a story parable like ours. Instead, there's, there's actually some great resources for this. There's a, uh, a tradition of reading scripture called the Ignatian reading of the Gospels, where you imagine yourself in the shoes of one character or another, so you've never exhausted your ability to read these stories. One time, uh, you could be in the crowd that is pressing upon Jesus, imagining yourself there. Or maybe sometimes you're one of the disciples, sometimes like a disciple that knows the answer, and sometimes a disciple that gets it completely wrong, right? Or sometimes you're a householder trying to get your harvest picked, and, and that happens one minute, and the next minute you're a late-coming temp day laborer, right? Right? 
So if you take these various approaches, it shows you really quickly that this is a parable about God's economy of grace, but it's also a parable about cold, hard economics. Like there's money changing hands here. One commentator I read uh, thought that it might be better to know this parable. We normally, it's probably got a heading in your Bibles as um, the laborers in the vineyard, right? Or something like that. And that always kind of gives us clues, sometimes misleading clues on how to interpret these. One commentator thought that it should be called the parable of the complaining day laborers or the parable of the surprising salaries, right? Like that, that starts you at a little different place. But each of these has something that we can really wrap our minds around, getting into the nitty-gritty. It's easy to fit into the shoes of those early day laborers who woke up to work before dawn, got picked, and sweated through midday as, like, um, we, like, maybe as a society chafe against ideas um, uh, about, like, living wages or universal health care or universal basic income, these, like, these, like, really kind of, sometimes they're really good ideas, but then when it's time to implement them, it's kind of scary for us. Like our, I don't think our capitalistic society that's built on this Protestant work ethic has, like, prepared us to even think about these things well or, or like, grapple with how they would actually work. So this parable kind of shows us that it's all fun and games until you're the one looking around at payday and your returns seem to be diminishing, right? The, this parable is pretty honest about that. I think this parable hits especially hard for really honest with how petty we are in our comparisons with each other. Like, I remember growing up, and I grew up in this huge Irish Catholic family. Shout outs to St. Patrick's Day, right? Um, each Christmas, we'd get together with my, my grandma and my grandpa, and we'd close out all the Christmas gift giving by, um, they would hand out envelopes or little boxes to all the kids and grandkids, right? And, and you always kind of like anticipated this and, and were wondering what level of cash you would be on. <laughs> like adult kids got a certain generous amount, older grandkids got a certain generous amount, and younger kids got a certain generous amount. Especially the grandkids were keenly aware of where they stood in the pecking order. And you definitely, like, th there was always those transitional years where you're like, is this a year that I get into the big kid cash, right? <laughs> and as my grandparents, especially my grandpa, got older and his like familial accounting processes got a little less sharp, every once in a while there would be a mistake in how these envelopes got divvied out, and that was always a big deal. Uh, like, the only problem is how do you mention to someone in a room full of other people who receive things that instead of the one denomination of cash that you've been freely given, you should have gotten another freely given amount of cash, right? Like, how do you do that with tact? These are some things we were taught in my childhood, right? And my brother always, <laughs> always seemed to come from my brother, right? His name, my brother's name's William. I just spent time with him and his family. He always seemed like the target of this inequity, right? 
my grandfather was also named William, and so we speculate there was some like inter-William kind of rivalry happening there. But I remember one controversial Christmas in particular where my brother's envelope was completely empty. <laughs> and my, my other cousin, Ryan, had twice as much. So like it's pretty obvious what happened, but no, no one wanted to tackle that. And something like that, I think, would make great parable fodder. Like this is kind of like how Jesus tells stories, right? And so back to, back to our gospel story. We find Jesus weaving this tale in a place and in a time in which some form of like sharecropping existed under King Herod, similar to how sharecropping in the American South is basically slavery by a different name. Herodian sharecropping was, had these similar like imbalances and put really intense pressure on producers to work within like really thin margins because they had to pay out. This was a really high pressure economy where even the bosses have bosses and had payments to make and worse off still were those who were day laborers at the mercy of getting a job each day. Not to mention like agriculture, farming in general and like grapes in a vineyard specifically is really seasonal and specific. You don't always need a bunch of farmhands sitting around doing nothing when things are just growing. But when the grapes are ripe, when it's due time and the sugar and tannins are perfectly developed, when the rains are coming in, you need all hands on deck. Or else. Or else is all ruined. Or else everyone's poor, right? Perhaps this gives a little more texture and kind of gravitas to that saying that is like kind of sentimental and evangelical about how the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. Like really, get the harvest out of the ground because we need it, right? It's into these realities that Jesus speaks. It's into this volatile, high-risk, high-reward world relying on folks with their backs against the walls that Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. It appears like this conversation um, wasn't like a big crowd conversation. This was kind of an in-house discussion with his disciples. Previously, Jesus had been teaching them about the coming kingdom. He's going on and on about this coming kingdom, Matthew says, of the heavens. This kingdom that is all around us, that's at, at hand, that's at an arm's reach, that in which we live and move and have our being. And he's specifically been warning his disciples, his followers, his apprentices, how hard it is for human beings to fit through the the narrow gate of eternal life while trying to carry the baggage and check the luggage of wealth and possessions. There's that famous passage about the rich man and the eye of the needle that we try to, to interpret our way around. Jesus seems pretty suspicious, not of the space that heaven has for all of us and ours, because I think heaven is a pretty roomy place, but the room that we clutter and compete for in our hearts and minds meant solely for God and the things of God. Many of his followers have left quite a bit behind to roam the Mediterranean countryside, healing people and proclaiming the good news. Peter kind of has an objection and Jesus answers and he says, Peter, I assure you who have followed me that when everything is made new, when the Son of Man sits on his magnificent throne, 
You will also sit on 12 thrones overseeing the 12 tribes of Israel and all who have left houses and brothers and sisters and mother and father and children and farms because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. This is at the end of chapter 19 right before our reading today. This is kind of the intro track to Jesus' magnum opus of today's parable. It's funny because after the parable from today, James and John's mom, we might call her like the mother of thunder, right? Because they're the sons of thunder, right? These are like zealous kind of people. And I think they came by it honestly because their mom pulls Jesus aside and it's kind of hung up on the idea of who's going to get to sit on which throne where. Again, overseeing those 12 tribes. Who's going to be in charge? And she's vying for a spot for her sons. She puts in a good word to try to lock these prime spots in for her boys. But Jesus refuses to play their Game of Thrones, right? Like, to her request that one will sit on his right and one will sit on his left in the kingdom, Jesus replies, you know, you know that those who rule the Gentiles show off their authority over them, they lord it over them with their high-ranking officials ordering them around. But that's not how it's going to be with you. Whoever wants to be great among you will be your servant. Whoever wants to be the first will be your slave. Just as the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but rather to serve and to give his life to liberate many people. This is the end of chapter 20. So these are the bookends for our parable today. The last shall be first and the first shall be last. And this idea that I think unlocks something about our parable. Against his disciples, against our persistent idea that this life should be ordered by hierarchies and meritocracies in closed worlds where our fates are sealed based on who our parents are or what generational wealth you've been born into or what school you graduated on, no matter what the color of your skin is or what gender you are or what ethnic group you belong to or don't belong to, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus is busting up all these categories that they have for this. This is the kingdom of God owned by the Lord of the harvest and ordered pretty radically differently than in operating with some pretty different rules and assumptions. I think one of these assumptions is, first off, the householder is the one doing the hiring. He's the one going and going again and again, seeking folks to join in the harvest. Perhaps you got called early, like early shift here, 6 a.m. or 9 a.m. Maybe you're late to the game, noon, 3, 5 p.m. But what this is really about is that all hands are on deck for the harvest. Like the good father in Luke's parable trilogy, like there's, there's the coin, there's the sheep, and there's the lost son. It would be pretty unlikely that someone with some status in the ancient world would be hustling down the road trying to reclaim something. And so we see this householder going out again and again hiring folks. We see the good father running to hug his son, right? 
Jesus imagines a world where the Lord of the harvest is intimately involved, hands-on, and invested. For some of us, this is a really novel idea for our mental picture of who God is and how God operates. It's strange to think about the church this way. So often, the world of Christianity is an inherently like stable and safe world where we shouldn't or couldn't go there and do that or be with them. Many of us may have grown up around like leaders or pastors uh, who for some reason or another have given us a really like stunted imagination for what it means to be holy. And for that reason, holy has come to mean like disengaged and stodgy or judgmental rather than active and embedded and empowering. The householder in Jesus's parable is deeply interested, deeply invested in repeatedly outgoing to bringing others into participation and flourishing. So that's, that's one assumption that gets flipped for us. Another is that all of this happens in pretty surprising and specific ways. We're given a new definition for what quote unquote just is, what is right, what justice is. Parables generally like resist principles. So throw away your systems and suspend your expectations and get into the story. And so upon the first salary negotiation that happens here, a day's work for a day's wage and like a denarian is, it's like a decent day's wage. Like they didn't really argue very long over this. It was pretty acceptable what happened. That the, after, after uh, the first negotiation, the householder proceeds to make more handshake labor contracts. Like, you can imagine going to Home Depot, like, right around sunrise, and you can get someone to work uh, in your yard. Like, no questions asked, shake a hand, day's work for a day's wage, right? But he keeps going back to Home Depot every three hours to get more workers. He keeps filling up his truck with people to help. I'm not sure, but something tells me that the later groups are probably less desirable workers, like, more desperate and expecting less and less, like, less bargaining power. When they ask how much uh, the pay will be, he just shrugs and maybe even winks and says, I'll pay you what's right, right? This word is the same for just or righteous, right? His assurance is that it'll all work out the way it should, and he does this a few times. We're even given a little hint that later laborers are, quote, standing around doing nothing because no one would hire them, and he hires them, right? Finally, the end of the day comes, and it's time to pass out the envelopes. This is like a Breslin Christmas morning, circa 1992, right? And let's say the first line of workers that were promised a denarian, let's say the denarian equivalent is like $120. That's a decent day wage, right? Um, in, in a strange move, the householder tells his manager to give the envelopes in reverse order. This, this would have been really different than the normal first come, first serve basis. This is actually last come, first serve. And there's something really strange and beautiful about that and something that is kind of defining what just is here. Last come, first serve, seems to be the philosophy. So he starts handing out envelopes to the five o'clockers and they open their envelope to find six crisp $20 bills. 
And needless to say, they're stoked. This is awesome. They didn't even really negotiate their contract. Everyone else is doing the per hour math. And if these dudes are getting $120 an hour, they'll be all set. Everyone will be in the money. Early shift stands to make something like $1,440, right? Like this is gonna be great. And when the envelopes start to get handed out, folks get increasingly frustrated that there are also six crisp $20 bills and that seems to be the going flat rate, $120. They grumbled about this and the householder replies, friend, I didn't do you wrong. Didn't I agree to pay you a denarian? Take what belongs to you and go. And a little note, in Matthew's Gospel, when someone says friend, or when Jesus says friend, he doesn't mean friend. <laughs> in Matthew's Gospel, friend is not a friendly word. It's kind of like, hey, pal, take it or leave it. <laughs> and then he says, this is a great line that doesn't really translate well, but he says, are you resentful because I'm generous? And it, it literally says, are you giving me the evil eye because I'm good? Right? You can see this is kind of tense stuff. This is not a tame story. Do you see how strange this all is? See how easy it is to sympathize with the early laborers? This week there was that story in the news about the FBI charges brought against some really rich parents, like Aunt Becky from Full House is one of the parents. Do you, do you know this? this is crazy. Um, and they paid this different consultants and coaches and things like an exorbitant amount of money and resorted to fraud, like they um, uh, changed test scores or had different people sit. They, they um, uh, photoshopped people into lacrosse team pictures so that they could get scholarships and stuff. It's really crazy um, and the, to get into these prestigious universities, Ivy Leagues and USC and all these things. And these people got blasted, at least in the social media corners that I'm in, and rightfully so. But you know what this, like, th why this behavior is such an affront to our sensibilities? Because deeply embedded into our sense of what is just and what is right is the idea that hard work gets rewarded. And these people just didn't work hard enough and somehow took a shortcut. And that is so messed up in our minds, right? Like, we're, the, if the scales were properly calibrated and, and at the end of the day, if you work hard and you play by the rules, you should get what you're supposed to get. We resent these people for elitism and privilege. We resent them for perpetuating these systemic imbalances. And while we resent these folks, theirs is a story I could totally see Jesus telling in order to subvert our idea about what's righteousness and blessing, right? Like Flannery said, when it comes to talking about grace, sometimes you have to tell stories that are hard, hopeless, and brutal in order to break through deeply held assumptions that we no longer remember that we hold. And so Jesus' parable blows up this world to start a new one, like an imaginative world, but a kingdom of God imagination world. Whereas our world tries to set things up so that we get what we deserve, the kingdom of God is based on the vast enoughness where everyone not only gets what they need, but oftentimes they get more. Like that's what's happening at the pay line for these day laborers. There is a salary in the kingdom based on who you know, the king, not an hourly wage based on what you've done. This is just 
and right, not by our standards, but by God's standard, who gives according to God's riches and according to God's promises and more. This is an above and beyondness. And I think the third kind of uh, thing that gets overturned and, and reconfigured for us is, is how we're revealed this new gracious math, right? We're first revealed a pretty ungracious math, and we're let in on the open secret of God's grace. It kind of has its own logic of its, uh, it has a logic of its own. Uh, Robert Farr Capon puts it, God is not, <laughs> he says, God is only crazy, not stupid. <laughs> God is only crazy, not stupid. Like God, the householder has arranged for their recompense to be based only on the weird goodness he's most famous for, not on their just desserts they infamously imagined for themselves. Every last envelope they find has 620s in it, no more for those who worked all day and no less for those who didn't. That's scandal for us. That's a stumbling block for us. It is for me, at least. I, I won't speak for y'all. Maybe this is, you guys got this. But for those of us, probably all of us who walk through life with God, wanting to know what the score is and what to expect, Jesus whacks us over the head with the bad news that there's only good news. That this grace has like an asymmetry. It's imbalanced. Disciples like us offer our whole lives in return for God's whole life asymmetrical. We've been initiated into this life through repentance, and it's marked by baptism. We're doing a baptism class, and we'll celebrate that on Easter. Uh, behind the screen is, is a baptismal font. We've been initiated into this life through repentance and marked by baptism to show that none of this relies on us, that God actually prefers a death that he can resurrect over a life headed in the wrong direction. That's why we need to turn around and be buried with Christ and raised to new life. And this life of abundance isn't often all that flashy, so sometimes we miss it. And the parables help us re-see re it, reimagine it, and give us new eyes and new, new hearts and new imaginations. I learned a word while I was studying uh, this week that I didn't know. And, like, there's a lot of words that I don't know, but not normally in the books that I want to read, right? Like, um, and so I came across this word, and it was attached to grace. It, the word is insouciant. I, I think it's right there. And, you know, we're teaching our, our first grader, Noah. She's learning how to read. And we talk about context clues and how you can kind of be a detective and figure out what words mean by what words are around it. And that didn't work for me. And maybe it's because I think I know things about grace. And so I just thought that that was like a word that just meant like a lot and free. And, you know, like name, fill in the blank, the thing that you think about grace, right? When I actually looked it up, it means nonchalant, lighthearted, unconcerned, untroubled. <laughs> and it's the weirdest word to pair with grace to me, but I, I kind of see what is happening here. That God's grace is as subtle as it is spacious. 
nonchalant, non-anxious, abundant, patient, above and beyond, like this landholder handing out these envelopes saying, buddy, take it or leave it. Like, this is a good deal no matter how you slice it, right? Jesus wishes, like the blessings in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor, uh, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who mourn, to reform our imaginations to be synced with what the kingdom of the heavens, which is all around us at hand in which we have become citizens, feels, tastes, looks, and acts like. This is a spirit-led kingdom, which paradoxically is built on vulnerability. Leastness, lastness, lostness, littleness, closeness to death but it's ultimately the most real, durable, and abundant way to be. That this is a spirit-led kingdom is why the fruit of the spirit, which are often planted in like fallow, winter-dead ground, yields things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These these qualities which we hope for, which we receive as gifts in which the Spirit grows in us and sprouts and, and then is harvested, these to the world often seem like really vulnerable things to have. Gentleness, self-control. When, when's the last time you, you saw someone trending for, for being exceedingly gentle or self-controlled, right? These are vulnerable things that the kingdom is built on top of. These are, this is the food, this is the fuel for the kingdom and for our kingdom citizenship. Against these things, there is no law because they've become the law of this new land. They are the physics, the gravity, the currency, the lingua franca of the kingdom of the heavens. This is what it's like. As, as I close, um, we'll move into a time of confession it's also a time of, of grabbing on to some of these words and letting the spirit, um, uh, uh, the image I get is like a rock tumbler, like tumble around and take off some of our edges with these things. Um, and, and, and as I close and, and as we move into confession, then we'll gather around this communion table. And, and it, it's here at this table that we're fed and, and it, that we enact that prayer, that Lord's prayer that, that we often say, Give us this day our daily bread. Uh, this is like the same economy, this dailiness, this reliance on God to feed us that those laborers and that fictitious parable story were feeling. They, they, they had enough. They had more than enough because it was given to them, not because they earned it, even as they were participants. It, it's, it, it's similar to that wedding story at Cana in, in John 2 that that Jesus turns these barrels of water into wine, and, and it's not for the beginning of the party when people can actually taste it, but it's for the overflowing and abundant and ridiculously lavish after party that they get the best wine. The last shall be first and the first shall be last. We gather around this, which, which we hold and remember as Christ's body and blood, which feeds the least, the last, the lost, the littlest, and the closest to death. And in doing so, we become partakers in the cup of Christ's blood. That we're participants in this vineyard of harvest. No matter how early you've been here or how late you're coming, God is going out to call you into the harvest. So you can be recipients also of God's abundant, 
and counterintuitive grace. Will you all pray with me? Uh, Father, we thank you for this new math um, that is above and beyond grace math. Uh, Lord, um, forgive us for the ways that we math ourselves into uh, grumbling and anger and um, what we think as injustice. Uh, Lord, your thoughts are higher than our thoughts and your ways above our ways. Uh, sync us up with those thoughts and ways. Lord, fill us with your spirit that you might plant seeds and water them and grow fruit. Maybe not the fruit that we would choose, but the fruit that will make us healthy, that will grow us in the image and likeness of Christ, that will feed us and nourish us and, and grow us for this life in the kingdom. Thank you for all these things, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.